trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and on this episode of the podcast we have a really fun one for you but one that is also very practical i have on the podcast today and i've still got this crazy grin on my face because i just got off the horn with him it is brent ruby from the university of montana brent is an exercise physiologist and he also studies really in interesting situations like wildland firefighters and he has this very unique piece of equipment in a mobile physiology lab that was crafted out of an old Airstream trailer and he's been able to take it around the country into really obscure places and also ultra marathons such as the Badwater 135 and the Western States 100. We spent a lot of uh, time during the course of this podcast talking specifically about this one study that they did on cyclists where they rode in excess of 3,000 kilometers about five hours a day for 21 days looking, searching for markets markers of overtraining and you guys will be surprised at what they actually found. Brent is really practical and he is also very down to earth, which I appreciate very much in this age of scientific nuance. He tells it like it is and he boils it down to the very simple things that athletes can take home. I think you guys will appreciate that uh, over the course of this podcast. There's also a personal connection here. One of our coaches, John Fitzgerald, had Brent as a professor in college and we spend a little bit of time at the very beginning of this podcast talking about that personal connection connection. So here we go. I can get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Brent Ruby. Oh, before we get into it, I, uh, John Fitzgerald wanted me to tell you hi. Oh, that's awesome. He was such a great student. That's so cool to see him doing stuff. Yeah, I remember back in the day when he was an undergrad, he was like struggling to figure out what am I going to do? What do I want to major in? And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> well, I'll, t I'll tell you what, he's found his calling as a coach because he's fantastic. He was the the first uh, ultra running coach specifically that we that we hired. And he obviously has that background, but he's also done triathlon and things like that really well. Yeah, yeah. And just does a fantastic job doing everything that you want a coach to do, in, including kind of like alchemizing the science and the social and yeah. the psychological side of coaching. He's very, very good at that. That's awesome. Yeah. So you did your job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I remember it was, he was, he was kind of struggling with, it was a stretch for him to come out to Montana yeah. for school. Cause I, yeah, if I remember right, he came from like the East coast or something. Yeah. Boston boy, you know, yeah, yeah, Massachusetts kid. So yeah, but yeah, he's, 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 he's done well for himself. I, That's awesome. he coaches my wife actually. Oh really? Yeah, that's how much oh, trust cool. I that's how much trust I have in him. <laughs> that's great. Oh man, that's cool. Highest compliment, man. Cool. Well, <laughs> like I said again, thanks. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to kind of start out with you were y'all were ahead of the hashtag van life curve when you <laughs> came up with this airstream that eventually became a mobile lab and. I, you know, I was trying to search my memory banks because that's not in, incredibly like that's not the only one that exists. Red Bull's got one. There are a number of other different outfits that have some type of mobile lab set up. But when you told me that you guys started it in tw 2007, is that correct? Uh, when did we buy it? Yeah, I think we bought it in 07. Yeah. Okay. That, I mean, at the time that's a really novel concept. So like what initially gave you the impetus? Well, first let's go ahead and like describe the lab and like what the genesis of it was. The mobile lab or yeah. the lab in general? No, okay. the mobile, the mobile lab. Okay. Well, back in the, back in the late 1900s, <laughs> I always like to say it that way. Um, when we, when we, when I first came to the university, in the mid nineties, uh, I started working with fire crews and when you work with fire crews, you have to travel with them and, and, or get to camps, um, to access them. And back in that day, we were, we just had tents and a rental car and it was a real shoestring budget situation. 
And then we graduated to some bigger tents. Um, but that's still in bad weather and cold and everything else was just difficult. And so we had planned, I had, I had just received a, a grant from the air force. And in that I was like, I want to make a mobile lab setup. And originally we were going to get one of the, uh, international harvester, um, crew carriers, crew buggies, or mm -hmm. what they call crummies in the West that hotshots use to transport like 12 people. We we're going to get one of those really expensive to outfit. And, um, I had convinced my wife, Joe, that I should be able to buy a old Airstream trailer off of eBay. She gave me a budget. I stuck to that budget and bought a 1964 Airstream <laughs> Had it hauled out to my house and this was in 2006. And so I had it hauled out to my house and, uh, that was the first year that I did the, um, Kona race in Hawaii. And, uh, I was getting ready for that race. And the guy called me, I was on a bike ride actually. And the guy called me and says, Hey, um, I've just pulled up to your house with the old Airstream. It hauls really good. And so I, and stopped my came back from my bike ride quickly to see it and it was in disarray so i got i was in the process of gutting that and working on that and that's when i thought you know what instead of a crew carrier we should get an airstream trailer and and build it however we want to build it uh, like the nasa group had done when the Apollo astronauts came back. And so that was my vision. So I called Airstream and said, Hey, I want to build a mobile lab. Can you guys help me? And they're like, no, you're <laughs> we don't want any uh, part of this. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to play with you. Uh, so they said, you have to buy one from a distributor and then whatever you can do, whatever. And so that's what we did. So we having that old one and get, starting to gut it, gave me the motivation to do that for our, our lab. So we, we modified it slightly, but we, it's basically a stock Airstream trailer that we, we built a few different things in place so we could handle samples or we could do whatever, but it's, you can live out of it. You can travel with it and collect data in it, store samples, take, take samples. And so it's, it, it's, it's been really awesome over the years. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, the listeners will remember a podcast that I did with Roger Crom out of the University of Colorado. And he made this really interesting comment when we were talking about their steep treadmill. And he's like, you know, oh, yeah. we, we do things that are not off the shelf. You know, we buy, <laughs> you know, aluminum and we're using skateboard grip tape and things that, you know, you're not going to find in a commercial setting in order to do the research that we want to do. Because, you know, we're trying to pioneer things in the in the very literal sense. And, and this this Airstream, this mobile lab is is definitely one of those. So for for the help out the uninformed listeners that have never been in a physiology lab before. What is actually in the Airstream? What are all the equipment and what are the capabilities that you've got in there? Oh, well, it's, I mean, you could, the nice thing about it is it's kind of like our, our home base lab at the university is we can make it whatever we want to, depending on the situation. And so we outfitted the back the tongue side, which has two twin beds, um, we outfitted that by raising one of the beds so we had more storage underneath it so we could easily get um, all the muscle samples that were necessary during one of our first big field trials with it with the with the cyclists, the zero over training study. And so and then we outfitted the bathroom, what is typically the bathroom. We put centrifuge in there, we put storage facilities for like liquid nitrogen doers to hold the samples and to keep them um to keep them cold. And then the basic rest of it is just a, a really important place for the uh um automatic espresso maker or those studies. very important and then, and then and then just basically computer uh data analysis stuff so it's not like it's outfitted with cycle ergometers or treadmills or things like that we can take all that stuff but we don't deploy those in that space we build uh we have auxiliary tents that we can put up and um mobile power systems to be able to 
to power those. And we've done that on in a variety of locations. We actually bought a, a different Airstream, a shorter one for a project series on top of Mount Evans in Colorado, which is like almost, well, it's 14. And the nice yep. thing about Mount Evans is you could drive up there. Yeah. It's not super fun hauling an Airstream, but we, we did it over and over. Um, it was like back in 2012, I believe, uh, for a project we were helping some folks at CU uh, Med Center in Denver on. But that that trailer had to be shorter to get around some of the switchbacks. Yeah, sure. there. But so, the, the fundamental advantage is you've got this mobile asset that you can take out in the field and collect samples from and store those samples. Yeah. In a lot of different environments, you mentioned Mount Evans. We're going to talk yeah. about the cycling study that you did where you took people, you know, I can't remember what the two endpoints were, but over, you know, 3000 kilometers. And, and that's a, it's kind of a rarity in sports science where you're either limited to collecting those samples in the lab or at mm -hmm. least in one location, you post up somewhere for a week right. or something like that. And you're having people do things out. They might be doing things out in the field, but you're collecting samples from a, from kind of a fixed location. Right. Yeah. And we've done that a lot at races. Well, the, the, it's you, those races are almost all point to point races like Badwater or Western States. Um, Kona of course is, well, we didn't take the trailer over there, <laughs> but uh, we've, we've, we've holed up in the, the medical tent at Ironman uh, a few times to get samples, but, and that's a, that's a pretty simple place to collect it. But yeah, out, out in the sticks of Montana where you're trying to collect muscle samples from wildland firefighters, when there is no electricity and no lights, having that trailer is a godsend because right. we have heat and we have, and it's all solar powered. All of the trailers are solar powered. So we don't need, we've never once, never once turned on a generator for any of those field studies. So as a, oh, as a fellow van lifer and somebody who did some modifications to my van, I have to ask how much battery power do you have? It's, it's not that impressive. I really? mean, we have a few different like goal zero systems that we can take along with it, but it's not like a Tesla battery bank <laughs> of power. Um, Cause most of the time with the exception of um, like some of the cycle ergometers, it's pretty low, yeah. low voltage, yeah. uh, low amp type stuff. And surprisingly the damn coffee machine Sometimes, well, it will not work with the goal zero system. And so that is, a, you have to have land power uh, to be able to power that silly coffee maker. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's your limiting factor, you're doing okay. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned this a little bit, and I want to spend just one more second kind of setting this up for the listeners. Give You, you mentioned a couple of different locations to where you've taken this. In mm -hmm. the endurance space, Give us a, an idea, scope of where it's all been, because it's been in a lot of really impressive, like high profile places that the listeners will readily uh, recognize. Yeah, we uh, the first time we took it out was on this big cycling study that went from Missoula to Colorado and back, Walden, Colorado and back. In that same year, we also took it to um, the Western States 100 and we had it at the at. I mean, you walked right out the door of the trailer and there was the start of the race. So we had it on a, a, a big parking pad right by the start of the race, which was awesome to get uh, last minute samples for the groups that, that left on that early morning. Uh, we also had it at Badwater Basin at the start of Badwater and we had it at the finish um, at, up on uh, up on top of, uh, or at the portal, Whitney portal, um, which was nice. Cause there's a lot of freaking bears up there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then we've, where else we've had it on loads of fires in, in Montana. Um, and just recently we took it to a 24 hour race, um, the 24 hour mountain bike race in bend. And we had it parked right there on the course, which was outstanding. Uh, cause we could, we could, we weren't collecting any really any high profile samples, but we needed nude weights and we needed, um, 
urine samples for this energy expenditure study we did on on that at that race so yeah it's just i mean when you walk into it you, i mean airstreams in general are pretty cool trailers and yeah. when you walk into it you wouldn't really outside of some of the maybe the artwork in there or some of the little things that give it away as a research facility it just looks like a regular airstream trailer but it's been in a lot of special places and we've claimed i called airstream uh after when was it i don't know if it was after one of the fire studies or after one of the after this year i think it was after one of the fire studies i call airstream trailer and i go hey i want to claim I think I have two world records with your, with this Airstream trailer. And they're like, Oh really? Uh, you're calling again. <laughs> and uh, pulling up your, cu- said, their, your customer profile. And they're like this dude, this guy. <laughs> yeah. They should take advantage of, they should market uh, based on the things we've done with Airstream. Cause we've been a good customer, but uh, I have three of them. I have my own. And then we have two at the lab, which are awesome. But I said, I want to claim that we have two world records. We we have the world record for the most muscle biopsies taken in an Airstream trailer. And we have the, uh, that's a cumulative total. And then we also have, I also have the day record, the single day record of mo- most biopsies taken in the trailer, which is 20. We'll, uh, we'll send 20 that. In one day. We'll send, we'll send that off to Guinness. I'm sure Airstream, they're looking at your three sales and are like, yeah, this is a pretty good customer, but they've got more units yeah. to sell. <laughs> All right. So one of the more interesting studies that we've talked about a couple of times uh, already in, in, in this intro is the cycling study that you did. And I think that this is a fascinating one to learn about a lot of these complex issues dealing with overtraining. And this, this comes in, it seems like it's kind of fallen out of the news cycle, to be honest with you. So maybe this is like, this like pushes it back in, but every 18 months or so, there's some there's some new cycle that happens about athletes that are overtrained and typically they'll pull from the cycling world they'll pull from the triathlon world they'll pull from the running world and in in trail ultramarathon uh running we see a lot as well just because it's a high volume uh type of sport you had this really unique opportunity to study the site the cyclists like day by day in a very overtrained type of setup and one of the one of the one of the classic ones that i've actually seen where the cyclists went from Missoula to Boulder. Those are the two endpoints, correct? Walden, Colorado. Okay, right? to Golden. Just Golden. just over the just over the border in Walden, uh, just north of like the steamboat area. Okay. So thirty two hundred K, hundred and seventy K a day. And to relay that to the listeners, that's about they're probably about a five or six hour day on the bike each day. Yeah, about six hours at yeah. least. So six hours a day for 21 days. I think there are two rest days in there, right? Yep. So a lot of training. Yeah. A lot of training. A lot of training is kind of what I'm getting to. Why don't you, why don't you further describe that study and what were your primary aims? And then we'll, we'll kind of take the conclusion separately because I think that's a fascinating thing to start to bat around for the listeners to try to understand. When, when we, we wanted to do an overtraining study. uh, And so we were, struggling with different methodologies and that's right around the time when we uh went to pick up the airstream trailer so we picked up the airstream outside of eugene oregon and then hightailed it to the coast and camped for about four nights on the coast near um near cannon beach and i was with uh my whole lab team, which there were three others, Dustin Slivka, who actually is the primary author of those papers, and then John Cuddy and Walter Hales. Um, that was our lab team for when we first started the research center and when we first got that Airstream trailer. So we we, we went to the coast solely to uh, plan, plot and plan the methodology for that study. And we were bantering around, should it be primarily lab-based? Should it be a combination of lab-based with some field rides? We we knew all the while that they were going to be riding outside. We didn't want to do 100-mile rides on rollers or on a well, there was no smart trainer back then. Right. Um, we had either rollers, but the um, at that time, the power meter 
opportunities on bikes were just becoming a, a reality. And so we, we worked with PowerTap um, to outfit all the bikes with, with, with those power meters, which was fantastic. Cause essentially we were like, wow, this turns a regular sweet road bike into an ergometer yeah. and we can monitor everything during their training or during these training rides. So that's how it, that's how it developed. The concept of that was to design an overtraining uh, type scenario where we ramped up their uh, training volume by about 400%. And in doing so, we thought, oh my goodness, we're going to see all kinds of signs and symptoms of, of bitchiness and overtraining and grumpiness. And we saw some of that, but it was surprising how uh, the classic markers of overtraining that have been reported in the literature, we just couldn't see those uh, repeatedly. And what we were really adamant about was adding in uh, performance trials. So every third day, they would start their day with a good breakfast, a warm up, and then what we called the hour of power. And we just designated a course that didn't have a hard endpoint. It had a hard start. And then the endpoint was flexible depending on how far they went. But the goal was to go as fast and as hard as they could for that hour. And the power meters did the trick. So we had a, a time trial every third day. And the thing about overtraining is, um, if it, it doesn't matter what the marker is, if the quintessential measure of performance doesn't change, then it's, it's not a thing. And it's like athletes are, triathletes are famous for wanting to talk about, oh, I feel like I'm overtraining. I feel like this, I feel like that. And it's like, you know what? Probably not a thing. Are you complaining? No doubt about it. Do I want to hear it? No. Uh, one of the first times we went to one of the first times we went to Hawaii for a study at Ironman, uh, we got there late in the afternoon, went straight to the beach, and we we're watching the sunset. And this uh, couple of uh, locals, colorful locals, older colorful locals, were there, and they're like, "What are you guys doing here?" And I'm like, "Oh, we're doing a study with Ironman." They thought. They, they started laughing and they said, which I've never forgot. They said, what does Iron Man use for birth control? And I'm like, I have no idea. What is that? And they go, their personality. <laughs> <laughs> and so, having done several of those races, I can tease them. Yeah, there you uh, go. Because there's nothing more that they like talking about than, oh, I'm overtrained or, oh, I need to, here's my, my dialed nutrition for my recovery. It's like, Okay. And they just like talking about it more than they like eating it. Um, and so I guess the point is they can talk about it all they want, but when we took these guys out of their normal day-to-day -day atmosphere or environment and put them on the road, we could not reduce their performance regardless of just hammering, hammering, hammering. And I think a lot of that, was just the concept and it's alluded to in that paper that taking people out of removing some of their auxiliary stressors, the other things that bring them down during the day uh, helps the physical training just flow to the top as being the primary driver of, of what they do and how they respond. I've seen that a lot with like, high school athletes. My wife coaches high school cross country and she's always telling me about this struggle and that struggle. And I'm like, you know what? You can train them perfectly for the hour and a half you have them. But when they make dumbass decisions in the other 23 hours, they don't eat right and they don't get enough sleep and they get stressed out about relationships and school and whatever, the benefits of the training start to slip away. And so the overtraining concepts I think a lot of those are driven by the auxiliary stressors that bombard these athletes, either professional age groupers or otherwise. Um, and keeping those at bay could really uh, be the secret. Well, and you have a perfect test case for that in this study that we were just talking about 
all that just blew my mind. I want to kind of back up a little bit so that the listeners can kind of understand the research protocol from a kind of a fundamental level, because one of the really elegant things about this particular study and why it kind of resonated with me is that you took athletes that were at a relatively, they were trained athletes, but they're training relatively normally between eight and 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And you said you increased their training volume by 400%. So that's going from eight to 10 hours a week to 35 to 40 hours per week. You did that. That's not a trivial increase. I think everybody out there is saying, okay, like, like I can kind of conceptualize that in my own training. I'm training nine hours a week. I multiply that by four. That's then 36 hours a week. I know what that would entail. Like they can, they can, like that's, that's people have gone through that. Right. Yeah. yeah. From a trail ultra running perspective, normally when that happens, it's like, okay, I'm going to go do a big training weekend. And right. that that increase primarily happens over the course of a couple or a few days during the week. But mm-hmm. you guys took that to the next level. So not only was it a acute training load increase in terms of the amount of time that they were doing in a particular day, but you yeah. extended it over the course of three weeks to which your statement of we were sure we were going to oh. screw them. We were, we were sure they were yeah. going to be fried kind of by the end of this. But... At the end of the day, their performances were generally better towards the end than it was than they were at the beginning, indicating that there was some type of adaptation adaptations occurring throughout that market increase in training. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and I, I, I'm still no, I'm still friends with a lot of these characters. Um, and they have harassed me over the years <laughs> saying, when are we, can we do that again? When are we going to do that again? And I go, none of our lives, all of our lives are more complicated now that that would make it very True. hard. And I don't think any of us could tolerate that level anymore. Cause most of them are, I mean, like me, a little bit older now, <laughs> not okay. in their mid. 20s. So let's talk about the caveats, right? The first cat, because I don't want anybody out there to go, oh man, I'm going to go train 40 hours a week now. Because, <laughs> you know, because Coop and Brett said that that was what that was, yeah. what was okay. We don't want anybody to take that away from this. But I do think that the caveats are worth mentioning. First off is, is something that you mentioned is that they were able to remove all of the other stressors that kind of revolve around their lives. They've got you know, boyfriend and girlfriends and they've got to yep. deal with the you other know, college kids. So they got to deal with their parents or whatever college kids get stressed out about. Not, not all, but a lot of those got removed from their lives and they were then able to replace that type of stress with physical stress, right? With, yep. with, with kind of training stress. The second caveat that I think is in there are, is just their age. You know, they were all, all college kids, right? So between, well, you uh, know what the ages were. The average age was 24. So most of them had had graduated okay, and had moved on from that, but were still racing quite a bit. They just didn't have like full-time, full-time jobs. Right. To leave, <laughs> they were they were flexible. Yeah, exactly. I guess what I'm saying is, is their age, right? Yeah, their chrono- yeah. their chronological age has yeah. a lot has a lot to uh, has a lot to do with that. Um, we see the former caveat a lot in our training camps, and I've pointed this out on the podcast several times before. Where we can bring, you know, we have a classic uh, training camp uh, that I run out of my house uh, during Memorial Day every year. And people will typically triple is is the number that we see. They triple their volume and they actually kind of do it quite easily. And one yeah. of the reasons they can do it quite easily is because they're in this like isolated environment and we yeah. encourage them to shut their phones off as much as they can and they kind of eat, sleep, run and things like that. Now, the sustainability part of this is, I think, the fascinating part, the 21, kind of the 21 days. And... I, I, I'm really happy that you mentioned one key element of this study is that you guys were primarily looking at the performance as the ultimate indicator, because we can always track biomarkers eight ways from Sunday. But the thing that always matters the most is the performance, which is always an amalgamation of all of these different things that are going on biochemically, psychologically, you know, there's, there's just a whole host of things. 
how do you like how do you explain that? How do you explain this fourfold increase in training load over three weeks and these and there were still some adaptation or some sort of performance increase that happened at the end at the end of the day? Is this just are we underrepresenting what we can actually do or what? That's a great question. I I I don't think we were in the long run, I don't think we were overly surprised. I thought we'd see some differential and that's why we tried to tease out. There's only so much you can do with 10 subjects, which is not a great sample size, but for something like this, it's about all we could handle. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, somebody would criticize, like the reviewers for those papers, ridiculous. One reviewer said, Oh, we think you should have done this study in the lab. It would have been a lot more controlled. And I'm like, see ya i don't i don't need that kind of comment and you're missing they're missing the point 100 either that or they're just pissed off they didn't think of it first but um the like exactly like you said there's a tendency to get overly obsessed with biomarkers in the blood in the saliva in the muscle uh it all becomes a, a complex version of alphabet soup in the end and if it if it can't be linked to a definitive change, maintenance, decrease, or increase in performance, then all you have is alphabet soup. And it in the end, with this, a lot of those biomarkers, instead of being markers of overtraining, we just sort of interpreted them as markers of a training stress that is occurring. <laughs> like simply an increase in heart rate. It's like, well, that seems like it should happen when you, when you go from zero to 300 Watts, it's predictable that a lot of these markers are going to go up and how you interpret them is a function of what is, what are you trying to demonstrate at the end of the, at the end of the study or at the end of the day? And that is performance and performance is infinitely more complex than trying to describe changes in muscle substrate use or changes in some of the genetic mitochondrial markers. Um, Those are abstract. Performance is not. What is your average power output for an hour? And it takes a lot more to get up to that sort of full throttle level of exercise intensity than, than simply knowing, oh, I've laid the foundation for better fat oxidation in the muscle. Therefore, I'll be able to throw down some higher watts. No, it's a, there's a tremendous amount of motivation that's necessary to be able to tolerate the level of high level of discomfort that's associated with an hour time trial. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's another thing that I think is worth pointing out or the performance indicators that you were using was a one hour all out time trial of which you said, there's no finish line, right? It's they're done whenever the hour's done. Yeah. That's not an easy ask. No, because it's, it's self-paced, right? They don't yeah. have people yelling at them like you do in the lab. Like that is a, that is not an easy thing to ask somebody to do when they're fresh yeah. And here you've got somebody after, you know, a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks of, of, of cycling a lot, five or six hours a day, you're asking them to go an hour as hard as they can for the third time. Yeah. <laughs> like it becomes one of those things like, okay, even, even that, if you ask somebody to do three, one hour time trials with normal training in between, sometimes they lose motivation for that last one hour time trial. You know, Absolutely. so it's, it's a, so, so your, your comment is really well taken that there's this like alphabet soup of things that go into performance, but performance is the ultimate indicator. Yeah. I was trying to count how many, uh, time trials they did. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They had to throw down seven different times and it's every they, three days. Yeah. They would, every three days they would do that. And they, they would complain a little bit about it. Most of them were like, okay, time to go. They get pumped for it. And uh, one of the things, if they would complain, not that they did very much, but I would say, just think of it this way. And I always tell athletes this, that a time trial like that on the track or on a bike or whatever is brutal. It's like that, that, 
like steaming blood taste yeah. in your throat that just feels like everything is raw and then tolerating that for an hour and the discomfort throughout the whole body that doesn't go away no matter how no matter how fit they are i said but it's i always love telling athletes it's a it, you're going to feel like shit during yeah. these time trials but man is it it's a whole lot uh more tolerable to feel like shit when you're going faster. Here's, here, here's kind of what I take away from this from a coaching perspective, and I want, I want to see what you th- actually think about it, is that I don't, I, when I look at something like this, I have less hesitation of designing intensified training blocks for athletes. And I don't mean 21 days of five hours a day. I mean right. four or five days at four or five hours a day, which is reasonable for most normal people to kind of set that time aside. Even when the increase is three to fourfold, I don't have as much hesitancy around that prescription, but I make sure that all of the other stressors is otherwise specified that are revolving around their life are minimized in the immediate before, during, after of those intensified blocks. That's what I take away from it is I just don't have as much hesitancy with those increases, but because I keep seeing studies, not only like this, I mean, this was published in 20, 2012, right? Um, not only studies like this, but subsequent studies of where they, where you can see all of these dramatic increases in acute training load. And the, and you would look at it and go, oh, that's dumb. Like you should only increase your training load 10% per week or whatever the stupid formula is. But the athletes are fine at the end of the day. And sometimes they perform even better when they shouldn't. Yep, absolutely. I think that is the perfect formula is to pave the way for like these epic sort of training camps that are short-lived like three days, five days, if you've got the time. And not only is it imperative that you remove, try to remove all the stresses. I mean, the most stressful thing these guys had to do for themselves was set up their own tents. And halfway through, they started to complain that you guys, it would be really great if you could set up your tents or set up our tents for us. I'm like, come on, we're giving you everything you need, full support on the bike all day long with a rolling food support and shag wagon for mechanicals. If you had it, everything else. But um, yeah, when you it's, I think it's, it's amazing how, uh, how tolerant people can, or what levels of training they can tolerate if you take away those other stressors. Absolutely. And the only thing that starts to then, uh, the only thing that creeps into that formula is the potential for some overuse type injuries, um, which some of these guys, it, it, it became a little bit nagging at, at times, but they were, they were able to manage it um, appropriately through the whole thing. Just some Achilles, slight Achilles tendonitis. We had one crash, um, one bad crash that required some, a couple of guys go to the ER for some stitches but yeah, it, it is so, if I was going to design training camps, that would be the most important thing to remove those stressors as much as you can. And, you know, we see this phenomenon where athletes get better underneath extreme stress in a few different situations. I mean, I, the, the listeners will know, I just got off a really big project. Uh, on the PC where an athlete was setting a fastest time on the PCT, which is 51 mm. days. And he got better after a couple of weeks, which is, you know, you wouldn't like, of course you're doing 51 miles a day. You'd expect a gradual deterioration in capabilities, but having run out there with him for a lot of those mm. days, I could definitely tell there were patches where he was better. And yeah, true. There was patches where he was worse, but there are definitely patches where he was better and you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that. But a lot of other through hikers that are trying to do this, you know, somewhere between 45 and 55 days or something like that, have that phenomenon of where they, where they feel better mm-hmm. after a couple of weeks, which is kind of the time frame of this study, right? After yeah. a couple of weeks of intense, of intensified training, and it kind of defies 
this prototypical overload recovery and then adaptation model that we um uh that, that we learn and i i learned as a student as well um and like i said i think it's just a fascinating thing that athletes can apply to their normal day-to-day training that they don't have to be as afraid of these big volume jumps as a lot of people are because we see that they're sustainable and as long as you can stave off injury and illness yeah and and remove all of the stresses as otherwise specified those types of what would what would appear to be absurd training increases are actually quite you know quite reasonable yeah but totally agree totally agree it's we also can't underestimate the power of motivation like what motivates an athlete to even want to get out of bed early and (laughs) in the morning and and go for a cold bike ride or whatever and that to me is if we can figure out how to tap into that and leverage that it's that's a secret weapon i mean i always used to take it as i was reaching a good point in my training where once i would finish a training session the first thing that i would the first thing that would pop into my mind is cool I get to do this again tomorrow. What is that training session? What is that going to look like? And I start, it, it, that was always my signal that I had kind of arrived at this being a, um, a sustainable training load task sequence of training sessions towards a goal. Um, and if I didn't have that, then I knew that I wasn't going to get the most out of the the training sessions or the, that block of whatever macro cycle it was, I was working through, but I usually take advantage of that with my athletes when they give me the feedback, like, Hey, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. It's like, okay, let's go. Let's start to, let's start to pour it on. Like absolutely a killer. Uh, if you could, especially when athletes tell you that unsolicited, yeah, then, you know, that is the perfect formula. As, as many times as I talk to physiologists, they always come back. The physiologists always come back to the psychology. It's hilarious. Like you're it's probably we don't know how to measure it. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's, we've tried so many times to measure like yeah. cognitive impact or we've tried to measure vigilance and firefighters feeding them one thing versus another. And, the best we could do in this study was that profile and mood states. Um, and yeah, it's a tough, there is no tool for it. It's not like a a cyclergometer test or a, or a muscle sample with an objective marker. Yeah. It's really interesting. I had, uh, uh, Mie, uh, who created kind of the framework for ultra marathon performance that a lot of physiologists are using right now. It's a physiological model. And at the end of this whole discussion, he was like, yeah, probably all just comes down to psychology. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, we just spent an hour talking about how all these different physiological inputs impact performance. He's like, yeah, just how, if you want to do it, you're going to do it. If not, you're probably not. <laughs> so, okay, let's, let's pivot. We're having fun. So we're, we're going to pivot to something that's some more fun. And I know you'll have, you can be completely, you know, as unabashed and uninhibited as you want to on the feedback on this. Cause I know, I, I know it's kind of a triggering or, or at the time, certainly it was a triggering concept. You know where I'm going with this Cheeseburg, so. cheeseburgers for recovery. And, you know, explain the study. And then I want, I want the listeners to appreciate the feedback that you got first, and then we'll kind of go to the takeaways, right? So explain the cheeseburgers for recovery study. Uh, Yeah. Well, the world of sport nutrition is riddled with complexities. um, And it's almost as if the, the, the group as a whole, I have nothing against them. I, I mean, I dabble in it myself. A lot of the research we do is sport nutrition oriented, but unfortunately it's, it's it's almost like the take-home messages are kept in a hidden box and they're secret. And the only way athletes or coaches can take advantages of, of them is if they, if they listen to or fall prey to the marketing of a lot of these different products. And I was, I've always been frustrated by that. I've always been frustrated uh, at how inaccessible science is to the people that are paying the bills. And 
with the work that we've done with fire crews and all that, my goal has always to try to make the science more accessible and make the take home message truly applicable. And sport nutrition is sort of famous for not uh, accommodating that. And so I don't know what triggered it, but a paper or two uh, that I had read where they where it was like, you have these fine tuned dials and it's almost like athletes are expected to run around with a scale and a graduated cylinder just to make sure they're eating and drinking enough in terms of grams per kilogram body weight or mils per kilogram per hour. And it becomes overwhelming and impossible to interpret. And so I've just thought enough is enough. Let's do a study where we, um, pick foods from the McDonald's menu and we partner those against commonplace sports supplements, which are readily marketed as the gold standard for muscle recovery. And so that's what we did. We walked across the street from the university every morning when we would do a trial and we would pick up menu items from the breakfast menu that we picked out uh, doing a deep, not really a deep dive, a shallow dive on the nutrient intake or the nutritional uh, content of the different foods. And back then there was a, it, it was perfectly timed because the first feeding, which happened right after the exercise happened during the window of the breakfast menu. So we've had items from the breakfast menu. How convenient. The second window, which happened two hours later is a four hour recovery window. The second feeding happened at the, when the breakfast menu was no longer available at that point. And so we moved towards hamburger and French fries. But again, this was, uh, simple items from the McDonald's menu, not like Whoppers or, or sorry, Big Macs or uh, anything like that. Quarter pounders, they were the small hamburger, small fries and everything else. So it's not surprising that when you take macronutrients and compare them to the same macronutrient profile, if it's delivered in gel form or semi-solid or liquid or otherwise in food bars and, and things with flashy marketing campaigns on the side of them, it, it's, it shouldn't be surprising that you would, would not see a difference. But the rationale for using menu items from the McDonald's menu is that is about as far on the other end of the spectrum than what is perceived as sort of healthy performance foods. And I remember one reporter, I think it was from NPR or something. He's like, well, I just, I'm just uncomfortable. It feels like you're advocating McDonald's. And I'm like, I'm not. If, the, if, if, if you read that from the study, then you're not reading the, the take-home message appropriately. And he said, well, wouldn't it have been better if you would have just gone to like Whole Foods and picked healthy <laughs> Uh, healthy food options, would that provide the same message? And I thought, no, and it wouldn't. And he said, how come? And I said, because if I did that, we wouldn't be having this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's not nearly as fun. And, but, the, yeah, but, so. but, but the setup is, is you had athletes do an exhaustive bout of work. Yeah. And after one trial, they consumed a classic sports nutrition product, recovery shake, things like that. Yeah. And then another trial, you had them consume the isocaloric and macronutrient equivalent in McDonald's items. Yep. And you compared the recovery markers between those two, and there was no difference. Right. The, and the recovery markers were um, muscle glycogen resynthesis. So what we, we've done so many of these studies, and we've accumulated almost... 200 subjects over the years in these recovery models. And we've modified the diet. We've given them um, things like menu items from McDonald's. We've modified the environment at which the muscle or the whole body is recovering in. And we've always used the exact same protocol, the same technique for sampling the muscle, the same analytical techniques for analyzing the muscle and the same uh methodology for depleting the muscle 
of that glycogen, which is a cyclergometer, a really aggressive 90 minute interval series. So we can, we can make the muscle glycogen disappear very predictably. And then you feed them two different times in that four hour window. And at the end of that four hours, you take the muscle sample, but most importantly, and we haven't done this in all these studies, but we did in the McDonald's based uh, the McDonald's menu item study. Um, I hesitate to call that the McDonald's study because it makes it sound like McDonald's supported it. It was not. They had no nothing to do with the funding. It was self-funded by uh, some of the extra monies that we had uh, laying around. So, But we did a performance time trial, which is a 20K. 20K time trial, full throttle, as hard as you can go. And uh, if you're doing really well, that is about 30 minutes yeah. or more, a little bit less than 30 minutes, maybe. Um, and so we didn't see any differences in performance across those two trials. Uh, and all of these studies are repeated measures. So the subjects are randomized as to which trial they get first. And usually it's also counterbalanced. So half of them get the fast food recovery foods first on trial one. And then two weeks later or a week later, they do the other trial and, and switch and vice versa. Um, but yeah, very tightly controlled um, laboratory-based studies. And I think the take-home message from that is, is as long as the macros and the total calories are balanced, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, I hate to say that Absolutely. because like, you know, like, it, it, yeah, you want people to eat healthy foods, right? First off, right? Let's get that out of the way. Yeah. But when you're measuring the markers of recovery, glycogen resynthesis and things like that, just hit the macros and have in total calories matter the most. It actually reminds me of an older study uh, that ended up becoming a product. And this was at a John Ivy's lab. And the reason I know mm, the inside yeah. detail to this is because the graduate student who did it is actually one of my coaching colleagues. And uh, she compared a carbohydrate beverage to a carbohydrate plus protein beverage. Right. And they found that the carbohydrate plus protein beverage had greater uh, rates of glycogen resynthesis than just carbohydrate alone. But the issue with her with her study was that it wasn't isocaloric. So literally, right. they were comparing two. They were comparing two different drinks. They were comparing this carbohydrate drink and then the carbohydrate drink with with protein added to it. Added, yeah. But a whole product got launched because of that. It was called Endurax R four. You probably remember that in the early two yeah. thousands. And they were, you know, hawking this this single study that you yep. know was the proof of that that, that that this was a superior recovery product. To which even the people involved in the study were like, "Wait a minute! Like, you can't extrapolate that much out from this one from this one single thing." You know, so yeah, yeah. The, the, so that once again, it kind of comes back to the macros and the total calories matter the most. Yeah, and then you can like if you want to get into all the nuance, you're you're, you're splitting the hair pretty fine at that point. Absolutely, yeah. You, to try to to try to require athletes to have to calculate everything to the gram is unnecessary. Unless you're chasing a gold medal, then yeah, at that point you need to like be willing to split some hairs because the difference between the podium's positions are finite. Um, but the, the other thing about all of those recovery studies that really is uh, glaring is not only does it, the food, as long as you get the macros in, it doesn't have to be complicated. That's the bottom line with that. The other thing is all of those studies are done in under lab conditions where it's air conditioned, it's comfortable recovery environment. And most athletes, most operators, occupational, military, or otherwise, are they don't have the luxury of recovering their whole person or their skeletal muscle in those optimal environments. They're at altitude, they're in the cold, they're in the heat. And how does that affect the rate of recovery in the, in the skeletal muscle? And with all of those studies, which we've done every combination, cold muscle, hot muscle, cold body, hot body, high altitude, uh, we've done all those combinations. And the thing, and we've changed, obviously, the, the feeding windows, we've changed the type of feeding, all that stuff. You can slice up the feeding as much as you want, but at the end of the day, what's most important is that the muscle recovers in a more optimal environment. 
My dogs are barking. <laughs> That's totally fine. The, the, the listeners will hear my dog as well. I was trying to actually determine was it yours or mine. Yeah. So repeat but, that last part though, because that's the important part. Yeah, the, the environment that the muscle and the body recovers in is more influential to at the, at the end of the day to, to performance and to putting down more glycogen for the next training session and so on. The environment is more influential than dialing in the food or macronutrients as precisely as you can. So but you can't sell that. You can't yeah. market that. And so that's where it, that's the dilemma. So here's, I mean, instead of athletes focusing on the exact ingredients that are in their protein shake or whatever after their workout, that's important. But even more important, they should focus on, okay, what am I going to be doing while I'm consuming that? Yeah. Am I hurtling down the road at 80 miles an hour, dodging right. through traffic, adding additional, you know, stress hormones into this, you know, cocktail of things that's going on? Or should I just sit in the park and enjoy myself and breathe deeply for, you know, a few minutes? Like what are the, like that part of it is going to be more important, the environmental piece of it, as opposed to the yeah. nutrition piece. Yeah. But the one thing we haven't evaluated is if you add stress to that, um, sort of cognitive stress, um, we haven't, we haven't done that element, but at least in terms of the ambient conditions, the most optimal would be keep the muscle warm. If it's the most often it's the legs. So keep the legs warm, keep the whole body in a comfortable environment. That's sort of air conditioned. So you're not going to compromise, um, nutrient delivery because you've got more blood flow running to the skin because it's hot out. That's kind of the ultimate combination. Um, so get but, a cool environment, put your sweatpants on. Yep. That's right. I dig but that. The other that's thing the... that doesn't work is the, 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 um, the pants that are, have become popular that are pneumatic compression. Don't get me started. Don't get me yeah, started. Don't. <laughs> we'll leave if that. I'm going to want to, if I'm going to have a massage, I'd rather have a person do it than a robot yeah. any old day. And so the, the, uh, or the, the squeezy pants that we call them, but those do not influence glycogen recovery one bit. Yeah. Um, and they don't influence lactate removal and any of that stuff. We did that study as well. But, but based on the research that you're doing, because a lot of athletes have this like, okay, should I get in a cold bath? Should I get in a warm bath? Should I do this? Should I do that? Like afterwards to try to facilitate recovery. I mean, the cold plunges are all, that's another thing that's the rage now, right? I mean, they, yeah. they sell that just to your yeah. point, right? I mean, I can go right now and I could take my pick of five different, you know, like specific cold plunge apparatus that yeah. I can buy for a couple thousand bucks and I can put, it's just a trash can with ice. That's what we used to use in football <laughs> practice, right? But what you're advocating for is something really simple, right? Keep the muscles warm, put your sweatpants on and stay in an air conditioned environment. That's likely going to facilitate recovery the best. It, at least uh, muscle recovery from a, from a glycogen, perspective. glycogen perspective. If you If you're an older athlete and the connective tissue is not what it used to be, and the ice bath has some therapeutic capacity uh, along those lines, then yeah, it's not like a little bit of that is going to uh, send you down a, a, down a path of inability to recover for the next training session the next day. There are other aspects of recovery that as you age or as your um, competitive um, window changes that like for me I, as a 50 some year old if i'm training hard i'm not too concerned about putting glycogen back into the tank <laughs> i can do that pretty easily i'm concerned with how do i support the connective tissue yeah, yeah. appropriately so i can get up and do this again tomorrow it's very different um but yeah <laughs> brilliant brilliant okay we're gonna leave it at that i i can't tell you how much i appreciated this conversation it was just as fun as john pitched it to be uh, he awesome. said you're gonna keep it real and i appreciate that uh with my guests i want to give you one last opportunity to plug this really cool book that you mentioned in some email oh. exchanges that we have i think that's a really neat thing why don't you tell listeners about that and i'll put a link to it in the show notes <sighs> Every time somebody asks me about that, I, I, I get a little chill. And then I also get a little bit, um, 
sometimes a little bit emotional about it, but I've been chasing wildland firefighters for like 25 years of going back to when I first started at the university here. And it, I've seen lots of those firefighters uh, start their career and retire within that window of time that I've worked with them um, as a research subject and, and as a friend and everything else. And I have lots of really good friends within that within those agencies. And we've done every kind of study I could dream up with these fire crews. And these are hotshot crews, sort of the elite uh, wildland fire community folks. And one thing that has struck me repeatedly when we when I talk to them and when I visit them or go to their home bases to give them a little blurb about the latest research and this and that um, is the stress that they have associated with the job is not linked really to how hard the job is physically. The stress that they have to manage is how do I do this job and how do I come home to my now new family? And little kids are involved now. I mean, I've known so many firefighters that started out as these young bucks that wildland fire was badass and I love it. And then they met somebody and they really liked that person. And now they have a little kid and now they have a puppy and now they have whatever. And so I just struggled with that. And when COVID hit and we couldn't do in-person research very easily, I had planned to write this children's book. Uh, and so I just was like, okay, now I have no excuse. So I hunkered down in my little backyard cabin every morning and I would work on it and uh, eventually finished it about, a. I mean, the, writing the story took me a while, but uh, working with the artist and everything else. And it's just been, I think to myself and I think, oh my gosh, I have all these papers that I get to hand off to wildland fire crews about how to keep the job, how to, how to make the job better, how, how do they train better and whatever. At the end of the whole career, maybe my best contribution to the fire community would be a children's book. Oh man. <laughs> because it, it, I think, I mean, right. Reading to a kid is unbelievable in terms of how you, the storytelling that develops out of it and the creativity that develops out of it. And it's, it becomes, I want it to be a conduit for these the hard charger firefighters to be able to share their world of work with their kids, mm -hmm. their nieces, nephews, grandkids, whatever. And they're not like the ultimate in communicators. And so this hopefully will be a conduit to let that happen a little bit better. That is a massively optimistic goal, but it's been really well received within the fire community. And it, I can't tell you how many of my colleagues thought you are crazy. <laughs> Why in the world would you want to spend time writing a children's book? And I'm like, well, don't knock it until you try it. Cause it was incredibly rewarding. Uh, great experience. That's, so that's just really cool. What a great, what a great contribution to add to all of the academic contributions that you've had. And I can tell you personally using those academic co contributions in my day-to-day -day work life, I'm incredibly appreciative of those. If the firefighters are even one tenth as appreciative of as me and my coaching colleagues of what people like you uh, have been able to do, then that is an immense contribution that you should be really proud of. Well, that is an ex I thank you for that. That's an incredibly generous compliment, but it's it helps when the job is fun. It helps to have colleagues that are in a university <laughs> that's supportive of my creative whimsical ways. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great, not a non bumpy ride. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's been really fun to be able to see a lot of these uh, projects through where at the beginning of the, uh, of my career, a lot of times there was a, a, there was considerable doubt from, <laughs> from the world of peer review uh, that this was a thing or that this would work. And so I've had such awesome colleagues that have 
believed in me and some of them don't believe in me, but that pushes me in a different direction. So it's, yeah, it's been a fun process. Well, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> keep that airstream out there in the field because it keeps producing good data and we'll, right we'll keep using it as coaches. I once again, I really appreciate your time. We'll put links to everything up on the show notes, Brent. Thank you again. Oh, my absolute pleasure. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Brent for that conversation. I'm still laughing too much about it. That was really fun. I hope everybody goes out and checks the show notes. I'm going to have links to all the research that uh, that we talked about. But once again, if you guys come away with some practical things that you can implement in your day-to-day trading tomorrow, which is keep your recovery simple and make sure you've got enough macronutrients. And you can do intensified training loads. If you remove a lot of the other training stresses around you, then this podcast has definitely served its purpose. Thanks again to Brent for coming on the show today and keeping it real. I appreciate all the listeners out there. Once again, this podcast has no sponsors. There are no advertisements. I take this on as an expense every single week, and I absolutely love doing it. You can help the podcast out by sharing it with a friend. Just forward it over to somebody. Send somebody a text. Tell them to check it out. Or you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps out the podcast tremendously. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.